The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. At this point, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles. We're going to be starting today in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It's been a little bit since we've been in Acts together. Two weeks ago, my friend Harry came from his church, First Baptist Manhattan, uh, to preach about Timothy. And last week, we were blessed to hear from Phil preaching about evangelism from the book of Jonah. So allow me now to help you settle in a bit and get your bearings again in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, and also John Mark, have embarked on their first missionary journey, and they have made their way to the island of Cyprus. After traveling the entire length of the island and preaching in all of the synagogues, they were brought before a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus, and there they were confronted by a man named Bar-Jesus, which means the son of Jesus. And this guy was a court magician. And God did two miracles in that passage. First of all, he blinded the eyes of the magician, and spiritually speaking, he opened the eyes of Sergius Paulus. But you will note that Paul and Barnabas do not stay put on the island of Cyprus. Instead, they make their way up to the mainland of what we would now call Turkey. I want to show you a map just to help us get our sense of where we're we're looking at here. So remember, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch. They've made their way to Cyprus, and now they are leaving from Paphos and going up to Pergia in the region of Pamphylia, and then they are going to make their way across land up to Antioch. So I want to remind you what's happening here at the beginning of this text. It tells us that not only did they leave and go to Perga, but it is there, here, at this point, right along the coast, that John Mark leaves them. It's actually the word deserted. He completely uh, left them in the dust. Now, we're not really going to talk much about that today, although we are going to come back and really hammer what that looks like and what that results in when we get to the end of chapter 15. But please know for now that this, when John Mark leaves them, that is a significant moment in that first missionary journey. And then you will know that they move north up to Antioch in the region of Pisidia. Now you might be noticing, if you're paying close attention, that there are actually two Antiochs, Antioch and Antioch on this map. Well, actually, there were a lot of Antiochs. In fact, many of them were named after the same guy, Antiochus I, and many of these cities were started by his son, Antiochus II, who started 11 cities, all with the same name. In America, we have many cities that have the same name in different states. In fact, the most common one is Springfield. 41 states have the same town, Springfield. So if you want to identify them, you have to say Springfield, Missouri, or Springfield, Massachusetts. In the same way, when I reference Antioch, the only two that we're really going to be seeing in the book of Acts are Antioch over on the far side. That's Antioch in Syria, so I will refer to it as Syrian Antioch. And up here, this is Antioch in Pisidia, so I will call it Pisidian Antioch. And sometimes the Bible will show that to us as well. So just so we get our bearings, this is where we're going to be landing today. Now you might know Antioch better by the people Paul writes to. Antioch is in the center of the southern region of Galatia. Galatia was a very large region. So when Paul writes to the Galatians, he is probably delivering the letter to the people who get saved in our text today. 
This is a significant part of our Bible that you probably don't recognize because of the name. So Galatians was written to these people. So now that we kind of have our sense of geography, let's read the text starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he had testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, 
Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's ask now for the Lord's blessing on his word. God, today we come before you recognizing that any work that will be lasting is all of you. And we are coming before you right now recognizing that there is much work to be done. So God, I pray that today your Holy Spirit in a unique and special and recognizable way would be working in our hearts and in our minds to help us to believe and to trust and to grow more into the image of Jesus. God, today we need you. I need you. And Lord, today we pray that you would work through this text to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get into the main point of the sermon, I want to begin by making a few quick observations that I think are going to help guide our thinking this morning. First of all, consider Paul's audience. He is not preaching to a congregation of Christians. Rather, he's speaking to a group of Jews as well as what the Bible calls God-fearers. God-fearers were people who believed in the God of the Bible, and they would actually attend religious services like synagogue services in order to learn more about God before becoming full-fledged proselytes or converts to Judaism. And this means that Paul is going to follow the customs of the synagogue. This was not a random invitation to a random stranger to come and preach. Don't you find that a little odd that Paul arrives at this synagogue and the guy says, hey, if you've got anything for us, just why don't you stand up and teach? No, they would have recognized that Paul was classically trained in the ways under Gamaliel, so he would have known exactly what to do, and this would have been worked out ahead of time that this man was qualified in order to speak, and that is why when it was time to speak, he sends a note across the room and says, if you've got something for us, you're welcome to say it now. So he is following a tradition that is very common in that time. In fact, we see something quite similar occur in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he is asked to speak as a rabbi in his own home synagogue. Secondly, this sermon is very, very different than any other sermon preached by Paul in the book of Acts, and it is different precisely because his audience is Jewish, and that is why he is quoting so much of the Old Testament. He utilizes history in order to hammer home his points, and these people believed what he was saying about the past. They had a shared understanding of what he is talking about in terms of what God has done previously. And therefore, he says that they should be able to connect the dots of what God has done previously and what he is doing now. So he is using this to show he is correct in his conclusions. Third, this is... I guess less to do with this particular text and more to do with sermons in general, but every single sermon should have at least two parts. There is a teaching element of a sermon where there is a, it is designed to show you information, to point you to what God has done and what God has said, and it is an opportunity to herald the glorious truth of the gospel, but there must also be a call for the listener to be changed. Otherwise, it's just noise. A sermon without a call to change is just a lecture. It's aimed at the head, but it completely misses the heart. So I want you to recognize what Paul is doing here, because he is an incredible preacher, and he is masterfully going to balance these two things as he preaches. He is going to teach them, give them information, details, facts that they don't know, but he is going to press these things to the heart, and he is going to aim to see them changed by Christ. 
So our outline for the remainder of our time together is simply to break the sermon up into its constituent parts like this, these two halves, and to see how he presents the gospel faithfully. So we begin with part one, which I'll just call the setup. The first seven verses of Paul's sermon contain a very simple history lesson of the people of Israel. He is actually, I think, quite incredible in his ability to summarize. Now, maybe you are good at writing summaries. I am not. As it's well noted, I can talk for a long time. And maybe Twitter has made people better at this and writing in short form. But in general, when you're trying to summarize the entire Old Testament, it takes me a long time. And Paul does a phenomenal job of taking the first 10 books of the Bible and speaking about them in an understandable way in 151 words. And they would have all known these truths. They would have known what he's talking about. He's not giving them new details or information that they were previously unaware of. But I want you to notice carefully how he frames this information. Paul is being radically God-centered in his presentation of biblical history. Occasionally, I have heard or listened to Jewish people speak about the Old Testament. I've read some of the Midrash or some of their writings of the Old Testament. And one of the terribly sad things that is often true is that they write about them with historical accuracy, but without God. He is not involved. There is no focus upon him. There is no mention of what he has done. But that is the opposite of what Paul does here. Every single thing that takes place, he does intentionally what the Greek language does not require. He adds and includes pronouns to hammer home the fact that it is God who has been working something together, this plan of redemption throughout all of the history of Israel. He says... The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. How is it that Abraham, an idol worshiper, came to follow God? Because God chose him. Earlier, Mike spoke about the doctrine of election. I want you to notice Paul's upfront reminder to the nation. You are not special because you set yourself apart. You are not special because you chose to be this people of God. You are not special because you are naturally superior or because you were the ones who figured out some divine code that no one else was able to unscramble. You are special because God chose your fathers. And he continues and says, it implies he, God, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt doesn't say, well, there was in slavery. He says, during their stay. I think that's interesting because I think it indicates that this was an intentional thing that God was doing for them. It's not that they were trapped. It was their stay. And it says that, that he made them great. Well, they were slaves. What does it mean that he made them great? I think it's a reference here to the numbers. When they went into Egypt, there were 70. And now when they are getting ready to leave, there are over 2 million of them. So when they are there, God is multiplying them to such an extent that the people of Egypt are getting nervous and saying, what are we going to do? These people outnumber us. And then continue, it says, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Now you may notice what Paul just did. You may not. But every single Jewish person in that synagogue would certainly have noticed a glaring omission here. Paul does not even mention anything about Moses. Moses, the greatest hero of the Jewish people, is not named in the deliverance of Israel. 
He does not say that Moses led them out. He does not say that Moses parted the Red Sea. He instead puts all of the emphasis directly where it should be and says, God, with uplifted arm, led them out. Now, this is really, really significant. And if you don't know your Old Testament well, you're not going to see it. But they would have known exactly what Paul is saying here. Because in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord is a very significant phrase. It is not a meaningless term. The arm of the Lord is used continually. Sometimes it's referred to his holy arm or his everlasting arms or sometimes his mighty right hand or his glorious arm. Consider what it says, for example, in Isaiah 63, 13. It says, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. The arm goes out to make a name for himself, not for Moses, but for himself. It is the arm making a name for himself. Now, I know I'm repeating this. It's intentional. I want you to see what God is doing because in the Old Testament, it begins by just talking about the arm of God as some kind of an anthropomorphism of God. Like we talk about God having eyes. He's a spirit. He doesn't really have eyes. But it changes as we get into the later prophets that it begins to speak about the arm of the Lord, not as an anthropomorphism, but as an actual person. Consider one of the most famous prophecies in the book of Isaiah, the beginning of the greatest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse one. You probably know this verse. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now I want you to notice what Isaiah immediately does. He immediately takes this arm of the Lord and personifies it as the Messiah and says, for he, the arm of the Lord, grew up before him like a young plant. And he, like a root out of dry ground, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Who is this arm of the Lord? This is the coming Messiah. This is Jesus. And the people in that room would have put two and two together and known that he is saying the Messiah that God promised was coming in the future was already present in the past. The arm of the Lord set the people of Israel free and he is the one that led them across that Red Sea. And that same arm of the Lord is now coming as the Messiah. And he is linking these two things in their hearing in this incredible sermon. Now look to verse 18. And it says, and for about 40 years, he, God, put up with them in the wilderness. Notice he has nothing positive here to say about the efforts of Israel. I'm not going to hammer this every time, but whenever he talks about the Israelite people, he never once compliments them. He doesn't speak highly of what they've done. He never once gives them any honor, which to the people sitting there might be a surprise. Instead, he gives all the honor to God for every good thing and for every problem, he puts the blame on the Israelites. So here we see the Israelites have to be put up with in the wilderness for 40 years. And then notice it says, verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, God, gave them the land as an inheritance. This is a one sentence summary of the entire book of Joshua. Joshua was a great commander. He led them in. Who did it? Joshua's not mentioned. It's God that does it. What about the next verse? Verse 20. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. If you read the book of Judges, you might not really think that this is the case. Well, 
the people were in trouble and a, a, a judge arose. God gave them that judge. God is the one that set them in charge. If you read the story of Samson, it's like, man, this is a bunch of sin and a bunch of, I mean, it's just a tangled mess of spaghetti of trauma and lies and sin of all sorts. What is going on there? God is raising up these judges. God did that for them. And then verse 21, it says, then they asked for a king. Notice that the people asked, causing a problem. Saul was not a good king. They asked for that. God gave it to them, but it's only because they begged for a king. And he even warned them through Samuel and said, don't do this to yourselves. But God gave them a king, causing all sorts of problems. And then God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Now, before I read verse 22, I want to remind you to do a pronoun check and to see that God is being hammered home in this text by Paul. And we are seeing his activity in the divine dynastic transition that is taking place here between Saul and David. Verse 22, and when he, God, had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he, God, testified and said, I, God, have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my, God's, own heart, who will do all of my, God's will. Do you see how Paul is doing this? He is making sure that this is the most God-centered sermon that has ever been preached in that synagogue. But this is all the setup they would have all known everything that he said so far. They would have all agreed with everything that he said so far. God has always been working and he's been working towards a great redemptive purpose. And I don't think anyone in the room would have looked at him with a side eye and said, who is this guy to come and speak to us? But now he is going to change his tone and explain why all of these things have happened. He is going to show what all of this was leading to, which brings us to point number two of our morning, the argument. By argument, I do not mean to say that Paul is being argumentative. We use that word weirdly in English. Rather, I mean that he is presenting a position that none of the people in that room had previously ever even heard. This is new information to them, and he is going to make sure not only that he explains it, but that he then defends it with facts from the Old Testament. When I was in high school, I had a friend. He would always read the last page of a book first. And then he would go back and actually read the book. And now, unless you were an incredibly forgetful human being, that is a terrible way to read a book. And I was always annoyed by that. I, do you guys do that? Does anybody here do that? You may be embarrassed to say it now. Well, you Don't do that. I feel like in our spoiler-free society, that's not allowed anymore. That is inappropriate behavior. Um, these people in the synagogue that day didn't have the last page. They had the beginning of the book, but they were missing the end. They didn't know the rest of the story. They only knew the first few chapters. So Paul is now going to show them that the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, it is the finishing point. It is the exclamation point in history. He is the one that everything has been about and leading to. He is the reason for everything that ever happened to Israel. The point of Paul's argument is clear. We find it in verse 23. But imagine before reading it for a moment, being in that synagogue that day, not knowing about Jesus, having all of this knowledge of your Old Testament people, knowing that you are from this line all the way back to Abraham and sitting there and listening in a service that you had been in every Saturday where all they do is they read the Old Testament and you don't know what they're talking about and you hear a lecture. 
I imagine many of these people were sitting there, or actually they were standing. They would have been standing uh, as this was being spoken. I imagine it was dry. It was boring. They were tired of it. They weren't real excited about coming. This is just what we do. This is just tradition. And why do I think that? I have seen that in many religious services in the past. Unfortunately, sometimes even here, you can come in and just fall into the routine. And I think in particular, being that they did not have the Holy Spirit, they were probably in that mode. And they would have been standing there, unlikely asleep, being that they were standing, but internally in their mind, completely wandering in their imagination. That is until Paul gets to verse 23. And I guarantee that every last person in the room felt a high voltage nature of these words as he spoke and it would have stunned them out of any stupor they might have been in. Paul says, of this man's offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Not only is it happening, I'm telling you who it is. All of these promises of Abraham. All of these promises are about Jesus. All of those promises to David, they are fulfilled in Jesus. All of the promises of restoration and redemption and renewal and regeneration and rejoicing, all of those promises are yes and amen in this man, Jesus. And God promised this and he has kept his promise. He is blaring out at these people. I guarantee they're shocked. And now what does he do? That's the main point. That is the thesis statement. Now he's going to present his proofs. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, you might find it strange that Paul is actually mentioning the ministry in such an extensive way of John the Baptist when he completely ignores people like Joshua and Moses. But I don't find that strange at all, at all, not even a little surprising. And the reason is that I think we usually underestimate the huge impact that the teachings of John had on the empire of Rome. For example, in Acts 19, when we get there, you'll find that we're going to come across this group of disciples of John all the way over in Ephesus. And they know nothing about Jesus, but they are there seeking to make more disciples of John the Baptist's baptism. We'll learn more about those people when we arrive at chapter 19. But it's important for us to understand that this was not an isolated, an isolated event, especially for the people of Israel who regularly and consistently traveled back to their homeland. The people of Israel were required to go back if they were able for certain holidays every year. And John the Baptist's ministry in Judah was much longer and more centralized than the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was primarily up in Galilee, where it was more of a countryside and fewer people went. So it's easier to hear about him, but not to really see him or experience him. But everybody that was a Jew knew about John the Baptist. And not only that, John the Baptist was a very vocal person against the king, Herod, because Herod had married his brother's wife and there was all sorts of scandal going on and nobody wanted to talk about it because nobody wanted to die. And John boldly proclaimed, this is sin and you must change your life. Everybody knew that. Then it would have made it only greater when he was arrested and put in prison. And then as we know the story, he was beheaded and his head was delivered on a silver platter 
That is the stuff of legend. This man was well known even by people who didn't believe his message. They would have known that he stood up until death against the wickedness of the king. They would have known of John the Baptist and they would have probably revered him as a godly man. But he says, don't even look at me. I'm not even worthy to be a servant, to tie the sandal straps of this guy that's coming. It's not about me. It is all about Jesus. And so Paul is telling these people, if you have any interest in John the Baptist, then the one thing John would tell you is listen to him. So now Paul is personalizing this message to them in verse 26. Notice how he refers to them. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. I think here he's actually referencing the fact that the people of Israel were the ones that had the oracles of God. What other nation had the Old Testament delivered to them? None. And he says, we have the message of salvation. It has been delivered to us. But then he explains how this gospel has been played out. Those in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Do you see what he's saying? The people who are claiming to be the smartest people, the ones who are telling you they've got PhD after PhD in Old Testament literature, they saw the son of God face to face and they didn't recognize him. They saw the Messiah that was promised and they didn't understand the prophets, even though they've sat in a service just like this one over and over and over, they didn't get it. And so what happened? They fulfilled the very prophecies they didn't understand. So notice what Paul is doing. On one hand, he is making it clear that the message of salvation is for them. But he's also drawing a line in the sand, revealing that there's another category of people, the people that do not understand and therefore are pitting themselves against God and against his Messiah. Now, by saying this, Paul is making this line very clear to them. You are either going to trust Jesus or you are going to reject him. There is no middle ground. And if you reject him, you are not only rejecting Jesus, you are rejecting God, the God of the Old Testament, and everything he has ever been planning to do, because this is the point of all that he has ever done. So now Paul is going to move to the crucifixion and to the resurrection. And I want you to notice that he does not put the emphasis on the death of Christ, but rather on the fact that he rose. Now, why does he do this here? He does the opposite in other places, but why does he do this here? I think the answer is that when Paul is speaking to these people, they would not have been surprised in the very least that some guy who was a Jewish ruler or Jewish leader of some sort that was communicating about himself would have been hung on a cross by a bunch of Romans. These people lived under the thumb of Rome. This wouldn't have surprised them in any way. What would have stunned them is the fact that he is claiming to be alive. So he is going to zoom in here on the resurrection itself. Notice that just like the emphasis that was on the work of God in the Old Testament, the emphasis is also on the work of God here. Starting in verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
but God raised him from the dead. This same God that earlier in the text said raised David to prominence as king, he raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the father, that uh, what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. How? How has he fulfilled all the promises? By raising Jesus. Let me pause here and say to anyone in the room who is not a believer, this is not just good news for those who were in the room that day. This is good news for everyone in the room today. This is good news that Jesus is alive and therefore the promises of salvation are available to anyone who will trust in Christ and believe that he died on the cross for them and be saved. He is ruling and he is reigning and he loves to save sinners like you and like me. If you are here separated from God, you are far from him. You have run from him in rebellion. Run no more. Come to Jesus. Bow the knee to Jesus. He accepts all who humbly come to him. The good news is this. Jesus didn't die for good people. If he did, no one would be saved. Jesus died for sinners, for people who have fallen so far short. So I plead with you today, run to Jesus and you will be saved. But I want to speak to you believers as well and just tell you not to tune out because the argument that Paul is making is not some dry abstract of principles here. It's not just an attempt to help you understand facts or history or to get you to agree with something that you already know. It is a reminder that Jesus is alive. After some of the conversations that I've had this week with some of you, I am reminded that you need to be constantly reminded that Jesus is alive. You need this good news. You need this good news and you need it right now. It's like when somebody gets knocked out in a sport and they come over and they take that smelling salt and wave it under their nose. That's what you need with this news today. You need to be brought back to a reality that Jesus is alive. If we set aside this truth and if we fail to stand firm on the reality that we worship a risen savior, then what are you going to do? You're going to live like an atheist, like God is dead. And you'll say the right words and you'll do the right things when you're with the people of God. But as soon as you're alone or far away from the people of God or with your unsaved peers, you're immediately going to fall back into a lifestyle that says, I don't believe that I have a risen savior. Some of you have been trapped in sin. You have been hiding sin. You have been living under the bondage of sin because you are not living as though Jesus is alive. But Jesus is alive. And he has come to set you free. And where Christ is, there is genuine freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, the word teaches us. Amen? Amen. And some of you have been really hurt. And some of you have been really uh, damaged by the sin of others. And you are currently feeling the emotional weight and strain of that. And you feel like you have, who have done the right things have been crushed by what others have done against you. And to you, I say, you have a risen Savior who is there to give you joy and to give you peace and to give you comfort and to restore you. And there are some of you who have been betrayed, some of you who have been lied to. Jesus is your friend who sticks closer than a brother. You need to know that Jesus is alive. God always keeps his promises and he has kept his promise to us because he raised his son. What else could he do? 
He has proven that everything is yes and amen in Jesus. So as I hop back into the text now, don't you dare imagine that this is just some pit stop on the way to another important part of the Bible. This is substantial. The shockwave that I was describing earlier that rippled through the room should be electrifying your heart right now. Not because of the way I preach, because I can't even wake you up, but because of the good news that Jesus is a great savior who came to right every wrong and to work together for the good of those who love him everything that looks bad. So before we look at verse 33 again, I think it's worth noting that there are occasionally two truths that you know are true, but you have a hard time reconciling them. It seems like a paradox. They don't fit together very well for you. Let me share one of those with you that has been bothering me for years. They're currently in the process of making self-driving cars. Cars that drive with a computer as the brain right? They use cameras and they see them. So a computer will be in a life or death situation controlling you. At the same time, whenever I try to log into my bank account, I get this box that shows up that says, prove that you're a real human. And there are pictures of stop signs. And it says, pick which ones are the stop signs, because that's how we'll know that you're not a computer, because clearly a computer can't tell which ones of these are stop signs but they're going to be driving me around in the next few years. This has been a problem in my mind for a long time until this week when I learned why this is happening. It is because they are utilizing us as free labor to train their computer systems in an algorithm to read the stop signs. So every time you click on one of those, you are confirming a bias that the computer already had showing that they are actually getting it right. So we're actually be able now to put those two pieces of information together in a way that makes sense. So what Paul is going to do is something like this. He is going to take pieces of information that the people of Israel knew. They had this, these details available in the Old Testament. They knew these verses, but at the same time, they couldn't put them together. When they were spoken next to one another, it blew their brains up. They didn't understand how in the world these could both be true at the same time. So consider verse 33. It says, also, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let me summarize Paul's argument here because it's probably kind of confusing and convoluted to those of us who don't really know what they were thinking at that time. God promised that he was going to send his own son. And the people of Israel debated, who is he talking about here? Is he talking about David? Or is he talking about a coming Messiah? Is he talking about Zerubbabel? Who in the world is he talking about here? God promised to give the son the covenant blessings of David. And what are those blessings? That he will sit on the throne forever. But there's nobody sitting on the throne from the line of David. So clearly it can't have been anyone who is previous, but so many people were trying to say this must be David, but at the same time it can't be David because he doesn't have the promises of David. And then we learn that he has to live forever because to sit on the throne forever, you have to live forever. And then he bolsters this understanding of that text because he's going to use another psalm to underscore that. So let me explain. 
When it says that he will sit on the throne forever, some people said, well, that just means his dynasty will be there forever. It means that his son and then his son and then his son. And so somebody with David's blood in their body is going to be on the throne forever. Not the actual person, but then Paul is going to say, those of you who believe this means he will live eternally are accurate by quoting from Psalm 1610, where he says that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. What does that mean? It means literally he will not have bodily decay. He will not rot. He will not go from ashes to ashes or dust to dust. He will live forever. The prevailing theory at this time amongst the Jews is that these verses were actually about David in some way, but Paul makes it clear that David can't possibly be the answer because we know he got put in a tomb and he did experience corruption. He did decay. His body is now gone. But Jesus, the one that God raised, did not see corruption. And this should be a clear sign to them of a stamp of God's approval saying, this indeed is the one I promised. So let it be known to you, he says. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is great news. This is great news. The law of Moses, don't get me wrong, it was a gracious gift to the people. But it never set them free. It just told them more how bad they were. It just revealed more of their own hearts to them and how they fall short over and over and over again. If you're currently attempting to reach God by means of the law, then you, like them, are in bondage and you're never going to be set free unless you come to Christ who alone can break those bonds. And as good news, as this is good news, Paul is now going to lay out a severe warning. He's not only going to say there's there's freedom available if you want it over here, but otherwise just kind of go on. Don't worry about it. He explains that Jesus is coming back to that line in the sand and dragging a stick across it to emphasize it, that there are only two possible responses to to a risen Savior. You either love him and trust him and joyfully accept him and believe the gospel, or we experience something quite the opposite. Verse 40, he says, Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. He is talking here about judgment. He is explaining that if you do not come to him, if you rebel, if you run, then the only thing left for you is punishment. So today, we have seen the call. Next week, Lord willing, we are going to see the people's response to this sermon. But I don't want to wait a week for you to respond. So if you have the sense that the Lord is doing something in your life, if you have the sense, whatever it may be, that God is, that God is calling you right now to do something differently than you were when you walked in this morning, please don't leave without talking to somebody. If you are an unbeliever and you feel that God is poking you and prodding you right now to understand this gospel, don't leave without talking to somebody you've seen up here on the stage. We want you to know him and believe him. And if you are a Christian and you just need a fresh look at Jesus, then don't leave this place without confessing your complacency to one of your brothers and sisters, without confessing that you need to see the risen Jesus. So let the resurrected Christ reign supreme in your life. Let him reign supreme in your thoughts and in your actions, not just this morning, but this week and every week for the rest of your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we serve a risen king, that we have a Lord who is Lord of lords and who is king of kings, one who never sleeps and never slumbers, one who is fully sovereign over every working of man.
one with whom there is no shadow of turning. God, we pray that you would cause us to see Jesus rightly, to live before the face of God every moment. Give us a fear of God that we don't currently have. Inhabit us with an awareness of who you are. Cause your spirit to convict us if ever we turn our eyes away. God, I pray that you would please cause our church to be marked by people who love the risen Savior and who live for him every moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.